Hi Venters, welcome back to another episode of the Just Checking In podcast. I'm your host Freddie Cocker and this podcast is brought to you by Vent, a place where everyone, but especially men and boys, can open up about their mental health issues, break down stigmas and start conversations. Each pod I check in with a special guest. We have a natter and a chat about all things mental health as well as anything and everything else they are passionate about. If it helps that person with their mental health, we discuss it. My special guest for today's episode is a content creator and designer. Teddy Lang lives in his hometown of Bremen in Germany and came back to the town he grew up in after 10 years of living around Germany, Canada and the United States. He then decided to start content creating and created his own brand avatar, the Bird Fogel. He spent the previous 10 years figuring out his life path and veering from things he enjoyed because of what he believed he should be pursuing due to societal expectations. In this episode, we discuss his professional journey from theatre to studying life sciences to business right through to public policy and where he is today. We also discuss why he tries very hard to avoid falling into the category of internet guru despite his coaching program offering fitting pretty much into that why he doesn't know the answer to living a happy and healthy life, but he wants to empower people to make their own decisions to find out for themselves. For Teddy's mental health, we discuss his parents' separation and the death of his father when he was eight years old, his issues with self-confidence and self-esteem, his disdain for identity politics and being pigeonholed when he was studying at one of his universities, and a year of travelling he did by himself last year for his own self-development and to work on his attachment style. So this is how my conversation with Teddy Lang went. Teddy, welcome to the Just Checking Pod, mate. Thank you so much for letting me check in with you. After friend of the pod, Alina, sent me your profile and the work you're doing, it piqued my interest, shall we say, and I wanted to get you on, and here we are. So how are you, mate, first of all? I'm absolutely psyched. I was so happy talking with you about recording this podcast. I have been in such good hands with you, so I'm absolutely psyched to go into all the questions. I love to hear that, mate. You've had a very interesting journey in life that's not without a lot of challenges, despite you saying to me off air that you hadn't been through any major trauma. So we're going to get all into that in this podcast. So without further ado, are you ready to start the show? Of course I am. We're going to start your pod by talking about your professional journey, mate, as you've been through a few paths in life before getting to this point as a content creator. So tell me and the listeners, first of all, why it took you 10 years to get here and the various paths you took that weren't always the ones you yourself wanted to do. Well, I think the most important thing to mention in this context is that I take getting to know myself very, very seriously. And the context in which I like to see this or the metaphor I like to use is it takes years to master a craft. Like if somebody was telling you, hey, go build the piece of furniture and you've never done it before, you wouldn't expect anyone to do this within a heartbeat. This is a to very really German ma- attitude. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. Like, I mean, carpentering, like, I mean, all of these things you can, <laughs> you can for sure learn a craft in Germany. But it might have been my influence having grown up in Germany for like around 18, no, even 21 years before I first like really left Germany. But I really mean it. 
And it's the same thing with your personality then. If you really want to find out who you are, I believe that you need to go through a certain journey. You need to figure things out. You need to make mistakes. And I've done a lot of them. Like I made so many mistakes in my life that by now I know which things I want in life and which things I don't want in life. But you were asking very specifically how this journey looked. And just because people on your pod don't know me, when you mentioned that it took me 10 years, I specifically said that. And the journey of 10 years started in high school with me being interested in both chemistry and acting. And like, as a young adult, you think like, okay, which path should I take? And it is usually important, but also possible decision to make when you're this young. So I naturally took a year off. I went and traveled. I worked. I even worked in a factory cleaning solar modules. I went to Thailand and spent some time with my ex-girlfriend there. And after one year of doing all of this, I decided, well, I'm going to study chemistry and business. An unusual combination, but I was interested in both. So I said, I'm, hey, I'm going to give it a try. But I noticed that both of those topics and both of those areas were not for me. I did finish the degree. I did intern in business. I did work in a lab for some time. But after three and a half years, I kind of figured out, shoot, this is not for me. And this feels crappy for sure. Having spent a lot of time, especially in the context when you're young, we're talking about me being 21 years of age back in the day. You spend three and a half years and you think like, shoot, like I'm not going to do anything with this. So I could have said like, well, I need to do what I learned and continue my craft or I get new experiences. So I got involved with various startups. I got involved with, with a few friends of mine organizing social events. And I continued exploring who I was. And one thing led to another. And it might sound unnatural. And people may wonder, like, like, how did that happen? We can go into that at a later stage in this podcast. I ended up studying public policy out of anything. You, you like, became I mean, a policy wonk, shall we say. Yeah. <laughs> we, we can say it in that way. And I mean, again, we can go into all the details at a later stage here, but you can see that my life has been very varied. In the past two, three, four years, they were the most transformative to me. And those years were the years where I finally started to allow myself to do the things that I actually wanted to do. It was after that degree that I did, which I did in the United States, and after I had traveled the world for a year all by myself, that I finally allowed myself to create the content that I'm creating these days, the way that you got interested in talking with me, the way that a close friend of mine and somebody who's been on your podcast, Alina Kloch, introduced us because I finally started showing the true version of me that I see in me with the world that I think that I finally arrived after a 10-year journey, but I arrived at the point that I'm more excited than I've ever been for the next 10 years to come. When it comes to this formulation of yourself and your beliefs and your... I guess, mantra or attitude to life. You described yourself as someone to me off air as a scanner personality, not a scammer, to be clear. <laughs> what does that mean in practice? Um, the term scanner personality, I only found it, I think, a year and a half ago. And I would say that I was a scanner personality way before that. What it means is basically just think of a scanner. What does a scanner do? A scanner scans a room or scans a page, but it takes in all the information that it can. For sure, I as a human being cannot take in all the information, but I can take all that I can take in. And then I like to discover what are my opportunities? What are my options? What can I do? And I view being a scanner personality mostly from the perspective of continuously keeping to look for opportunities that fill my heart with joy. 
I do not want to limit myself. And I would say the opposite of a scanner personality is a personality that very closely knows that they focus on one thing and nothing else. And because you specifically said, what does it mean in practice? It means that my journey, I did many different things. I learned many different things. I dropped many different things. But also, it means that right now, I have three core areas of focus, one being the content that I'm creating, one being my coaching, and the third one is I'm running a nonprofit with a friend. So you see that there's multiple things that really bring me joy, that I really want to move forward, and I personally need that. I need to have those opportunities that show me that there's so many amazing paths that I can follow. When you were jumping from these different paths, you said you were influenced by what you believed were society's expectations mm -hmm. of you and then internalizing that. So what were those expectations that you thought you had to adhere to? And how did you change that mentality? So I think the most important point to make and to underline, especially for the people listening in, and you said it correctly, because my wording was, I thought that society had certain expectations of me. Mm. There were not necessarily any expectations that society really had. Maybe they, there were. I cannot tell you that. But it actually, especially from a reflective perspective right now, it doesn't matter. But back in the day, I thought society, whatever that term means or meant back then, I thought that society had expectations of me that I needed to fulfill. Yeah, needed with the emphasis on, yeah. Exactly. And I reflected a lot about that question because off air, we also had a short conversation and it was very clear that we're going to go into that question. And it's something that has been important and shaped my life so far. And the answer that I got to is that at the core of this issue, there was that I wanted to prove to the world that I was better than everybody thought that I was. Why? Why? I can share a story on this. So mm -hmm. I think that makes it more vivid because people really, really resonate more with stories. And maybe there is somebody who has something similar. So when I was around 14 years, 15 years, something like that, I had an emo face. I don't know if this is still a we thing. We all had an emo face. <laughs> yeah, but like I had long dyed black hair because before that I had very short hair. I do have long hair by now again, but it was like all boys back in Germany when they were young, they had short hair. They were kind of fitting in into society, like getting back into like what I thought society was. And all of a sudden I was breaking out of this. I was having this long hair. I was wearing, what is the English word? Help me here with it, mate. Um, the spikes or what do you call those things? Like when you Oh have, um, yeah, choke chains. Choke chains. I was yeah, wearing yeah. choke chains and all of that. Yeah. Like I was all in. And my family originally comes from Poland. Like we moved when I was very, Ooh, very So young. very conservative. <laughs> very, very conservative. And I remember that there was an uncle of mine, more like a grand uncle. He was 65 years of age back in the day, I believe. And he saw a picture of me, long hair, all emoed up, all black. I think I even had eyeliner or something. Guyliner, we used to call it. <laughs> Ooh, yeah, I, did, I didn't hear that term. Like, I grew up in Germany, so there was not a lot of English back in the day. It's yeah. changed by now. But anyway, me with my guyliner, this 65-year-old, very conservative guy, as you picked up correctly, told my mom that I was worthless, that wow. I needed to finally start being a man and that I shouldn't act like a girl. I'm not saying that this is my opinion, but of course, especially in a day and age, I'm around, not around, I'm 29 right now. I was 14 back in the day. Like Some things have happened in the past 15 years in our society that this was more accepted, more normal. It was not that necessarily something spiked in society and somebody was like, oh, you old man, you need to change your perspective. Like, it was no, like this experienced conservative old man said something 
My mom tried to protect me, but in a sense, it felt to me that society thought like, yeah, this man is right. But I didn't want to accept it because it went into the person that I was. And I was still figuring out who I was. So why am I sharing this in the context of what the expectations were that I had and why I was trying to prove to the world that I was better than everybody thought that I was? This man attacked me in the core of finding out who I am. And I noticed 10 years later, or 11, something around, but at least a decade later, when I got accepted to uh, my master university in the United States, the first thought that came to my head was, see, uncle, I proved it to you. Proved what, though? I proved to you that I can be better than you thought that I was. I am not this little stupid emo kid. I've achieved with my education more than your kids have achieved. Did that take away from the achievement, though? You weren't proving yourself right. You were proving him wrong. Of course, sure it did. And it was a few years ago. Like, it was by now, it was five years ago, that moment. But it also struck me back then. Like, it was not that I was thinking that and I was all proud, but I was just really, because it was at the beginning of my true reflection time, I was like, what the heck is going on here? Why is this the thought? I had an amazing achievement for myself. I should be happy. I should be joyous. And of course I was in some sense. But one of the first thoughts popping to my head is this old man who shouldn't have any influence on my life in any way. And this was one of the moments where I truly, truly saw how deeply this went. Let's talk about your content creation platform now and the brand that you've built. So Hmm. the inspiration for it came from a three-year period you mentioned that you spent getting to know yourself. So tell me about these three years specifically and how they led to what you do now and also what you wanted to achieve with the platform. So to answer the first part of the question, the three years that were very crucial to my development, this getting to know myself, happened over the past three years, maybe four years. It doesn't matter how long it actually was. And you can clearly subdivide it into three parts. The first one I personally would call my meltdown phase. It was when I was... 25, 26 years of age. It was when I was living in the United States. It was also in the midst of the pandemic. I personally was not in a good place, neither mentally, nor emotionally, nor physically. My weight was, I was weighing 40 pounds more than I do right now, which is significant. I was lying on the couch and really questioning life and what I'm doing with my life. And what led to that phase is mostly me Again, coming back to the topic we were talking about before, trying to prove to the world in some sense that I am better than people think I am. There was no specificity to it. There was, sure, my uncle in the back of my head, but there was not a thing that was like, okay, I need to prove to this person that, I need to prove to this person that. It was very blurry, no clarity whatsoever. And how it looked is that I was giving up myself for work. Like I was studying full-time, I was working full-time on top of that. And none of this had a purpose other than proving something that I actually didn't care about. And of course... This overworking led to a point where I was deeply dissatisfied. And at COVID on top, I'm not the only person who had a huge reflection phase. A thought popped to my head that I cannot be lying on the couch all time. I cannot be watching YouTube videos on end. This cannot be my life. And I am deeply thankful that what I realized for myself at the end of this phase is that I needed therapy. And it is not that I am 
completely self-made and that I came to that conclusion. I'm very sure that it was especially the narrative that has changed around therapy. Many of my friends had done therapy. People were talking about it more openly, especially in the United States where I was living back in the day. And I was like, okay, I'm going to give this a shot because there is the path of me continuing to lie on the couch, not do anything and kind of give up on myself because I am fully exhausted or I'm going to try to resolve this. And this therapy, starting therapy was the moment where I actually transitioned into the second phase, which I would, if I needed to label it, call learning to make my own decisions. And the beginning of therapy, my therapist and I talked about a topic which you can summarize as process over outcomes. And one moment in those therapy sessions were that my therapist asked me, Teddy, what is it that you actually love doing? Like, what do you have a passion for? And this is nothing that I do professionally or anything, but the first thing that popped to my mind was I love films. I love great movies. I can watch videos. I can listen to podcasts about movie makers and how things are done. It's just like, it's something that interests me in the time that I'm not working. And then my therapist asked me, okay, tell me more about this. Like, do you have people you look up to in the movie industry? Do you, those interviews, those podcasts, those videos that you're watching, what are the people talking about? And I shared an example where Quentin Tarantino, famous director, he was sharing a moment that when he is on set, and motivation goes down on set, he inspires people to do one more take if it's necessary with everybody in chorus saying, we love making movies. Definitely not cultish though, that. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. It might be a little bit. And you need to be reflective with these things. But the important thing is I'm not urging people to follow Quentin Tarantino and his advice. But the important thing was what my therapist said next. My therapist asked me, well, Teddy, But do these directors or the actors or whomever you're watching there, do they ever talk about the success they achieved? Do they ever talk about how much money they made at the box office? Do they ever talk about how many people watch their movies or how the process ended or something? Like, no, usually, and I said, and like, no, they don't. And when a project ends, usually they don't talk about the end of it, but they talk about the next project. They're already engaging in writing the next script or something. And... This is where something became very clear to me that my therapist actually helped me with. I was focusing on achieving outcomes and I was completely neglecting the process of it. And this was making me miserable. I wanted to prove to the world that I was better than they thought that I was. And I was projecting onto this, oh, maybe I need to become a management consultant. Maybe I need to have my unicorn startup. I need to study at a prestigious university outside of Germany and show to the people that I am really somebody big. But... I didn't enjoy any of the process really. And this is where it clicked for me that I needed to learn to make my own decisions and design a process that I absolutely loved to be engaged in. And this led to a third phase, which I call freeing myself, if you want to label it. And I started actually taking leadership for myself and making decisions to actively create my days to actively do the things that I love doing. And there's a quote from the Tao Te Ching that I absolutely love, a philosophical or religious, however you want to put it, text from Asia that says, the journey of a thousand miles starts with a single step. And this is what I was doing. Like you cannot expect that things change within a day or within two days. Like, no, you start the first step and then you simply do things. And for me, one of the first steps was to say, okay, I'm going to go and travel the world and I'm going to do it all by myself. Because when you travel the world all by yourself, 
you are constantly with yourself. You make all decisions by yourself. Whatever issues you're facing, there are many, you need to resolve them yourselves. And you are developing the skill of continuously doing the things that matter most to you. And this was the phase that was crucial to me right now, allowing myself to create the content that I care about, the content that you see on my Instagram, the content that you see in my podcast, the content that really inspires people to do what matters most to them because I found out that this is what matters to me. And this is where I started enjoying the process. And this is where I started getting up on Monday mornings and being all excited about doing things. You said the two values that you want to express through the platform is freedom and something called, well, you call it a joy of life. So how do you do that in practice? Because the second one can sound quite vague to a lot of people. So these two values, how I live them in practice is joy of life is way easier understood in practice than it might be as this term, if you want to define it, because joy of life does not necessarily mean that I'm always all silly or that I'm always laughing or that everything is always full of joy. But for me, joy of life and practice means that I ensure to keep checking in with myself, that I keep doing what I love. It's basically what you're doing with me right now. We're really talking about what matters to me. We're talking about my journey. But rather than needing somebody to do that for me, I do this with myself. I keep myself on the path that I know is right to me. And of course, this changes over time. And I can only ensure that when I keep checking in with me. So this is how I live joy of life. Freedom means to me, mostly, to be very honest, freedom means to me the freedom of doing what I want to do. And it goes very closely with the scanner personality. So it's freedom of, not freedom from. Exactly. It is freedom of, not freedom from. Thank you that you're saying that. And I was reading a beautiful book very recently, by the way, because my definition of freedom changes over time. And I'm not sure that I could give you one right now. It's right now, it is really more of a feeling and a guiding force. And I'm developing a clear understanding of it by the minute. But there's a beautiful book, which is called The Courage to be Disliked. It's been um, all over. Yeah, I've vaguely heard of it. I've I've got a lot of books on my reading list, but I've not added that one yet. Yeah, I'm, I 100% recommend that book to people who are in a space where they have something, a feeling within them that something is not right. They don't know what it is. They kind of feel like they're not in the right place because it is a book that arrives at the definition of freedom that is hinted at in the title. It is okay to be disliked. The person that you want to be is the person that you are okay with. There's other alterations of this. There's alterations of this in the sense that you don't need to be the person who is liked by everybody, but you want to be respected in the sense that you need to have integrity with yourself. And freedom allows me, and also reflecting right now, understanding it better again, allows me mostly that I do not fall for some uncle of myself thinking something of me and me then trying to change direction, getting aggressive within myself, but actually to allow myself to be free to do whatever it is that my heart feels is right. Through the platform, you, like you said, make videos, graphics, you've started a podcast, you've got a coaching program. Tell me about the videos first, because you can very easily slip into the category of life coach or internet guru. 
doesn't help when you've got a man bun and a, a Jesus look about you. <laughs> well, I don't know if you have, but I think you haven't. You haven't seen me without my man bun. Like, man, then I look like Jesus, especially when I get out <laughs> of the pool or something. So there's something for your imagination. I think the biggest distinction here to make is gurus tell people what to do. I ask people what they want to do. And I am in no place whatsoever to have cracked happiness. I'm in no place whatsoever to have figured out these are the three steps that you need to follow to live the happiest life ever. But what I learned in my own journey is that the clearer I get and the more action I take towards that clarity, the better I feel and the more I enjoy my life. So in my work as a content creator, in my work as a coach, but also with my nonprofit, I simply focus on helping people gain clarity. And this is also what my content reflects. I want to encourage people with my content to figure out what it is that matters most to them and to encourage them to think for themselves, to then make the decisions on what it is that they actually care to do. And specifically mentioning my videos, like, why am I doing them? Do I try to be a guru or something? I know I'm actually, I'm enjoying myself. It feels authentic. I absolutely love it. I'm getting a lot of positive feedback from people approaching me. I also got a lot of negative feedback, especially from former classmates thinking, oh, like, why are you doing this stupid stuff? Ha ha, I found your phone number on the internet. Oh, like, what are you doing with this Fogel creature there? Uh, which is an icon that I designed that helps me go through my content and express myself better. But it just feels right. And it feels so good to help people to start asking questions for themselves. As 95 to 99% of people do now, you also have a podcast, like I mentioned, called the Telly Lang Podcast, which is a very original name. <laughs> what did you want to achieve with it? And how do you make it stand out from the very crowded genre of mental health slash self-development slash personal responsibility podcasts? Yeah, you for sure, Freddie, must have seen a huge share of it and a huge chunk of it being in this business, having done over 200 episodes by now, which I absolutely applaud. <laughs> Almost 300 now, close to 300 Almost 300. Now. So because yeah. I saw that they were counting like up to 200, so this is basically like with the people you have up to 200, the one-on-one -on -one yeah, conversation? So, okay. so essentially I've done 200 and just over 200 classic episodes, uh -huh. but I've also got like four mini-series and I've done almost 80 of those. So I'm about 284 now. Well, and man, I applaud that. And everybody <laughs> listening in right now, like this is an example of somebody doing what matters most to them. At least it feels like that to me. We haven't had so many conversations, but seeing your face right now, you must be in this for a reason that you feel intrinsically. But going back to the question, I don't think that 95% of people have a podcast by now, but I also know that feels you're in like your it. bubble. <laughs> <laughs> and yes, I named it the Teddy Lang Podcast. And why... Like, what do I try to do with it? How do I stand out with it? Like, why does it even matter in the context of like, I don't know how many millions podcasts there are, but there are millions. Of oh, podcasts. there's but, millions. Yeah, yeah. So when you look at the numbers, they change every day, but it is more than a million. There's a lot um, of dead ones after after COVID though, when people <laughs> got back to having a life and then <laughs> so many of them dead. <laughs> yeah. But oh, yours survived and mine just started right after COVID. Or like not right, right after COVID. That's probably a better time recently. to start it, to be honest, mate. I started mine way before COVID and you started yours after. So you weren't locked into that period. Yeah. Yeah. So to answer your question, what do I want to do with that podcast? Honestly, the mission is to inspire people to do what matters most to them. 
why is it called the Teddy Lang podcast? I mean, you know, because we talked about this beforehand, we were just talking while I was starting it. I was thinking about calling it the Joy of Life podcast or mm -hmm. the German word for it, which is the Lebensfreude podcast. Yes. But coming back to my scanner personality, I know that things for me change over time. Mm. I am getting more and more clear, but I want to express how I see life. I want to encourage people who are in similar situations that I was to find solutions, to find questions that they want to ask themselves and to actually start thinking for themselves because this is what helped me. So it just feels natural to stand behind this with my name because it feels more authentic. And the second thing is it allows me to really discover and continue discovering what the thing is that matters so much to me because I don't want to be crammed into having a podcast that has a very specific name that mm. needs to do one specific thing. And all of a sudden I realized like, oh, I got this wrong. It is okay to get yourself wrong and redevelop yourself, but it doesn't make sense to have a Joy of Life podcast and then all of a sudden change it to the Clarity podcast. And I was thinking a lot about what I want to achieve with it. How do I want to distinguish myself? But my very honest answer is, Freddie, I don't think that much about those things when it comes to recording my episodes. It's not that I have a deliberate marketing plan. It is not that I'm scripting my episodes to the degree that every single word in there is, is prepared. I just love doing it. And it is an expression of who I am. And especially when I want to help people do what matters most to them, I need to walk the talk. And when I'm really honest with myself, I mean, we talked a little bit about in the beginning, when I was in high school, I did acting. I dropped all of that. It was in my head for a very long time that maybe this is what I wanted to do. And I've seen over the years that I always wanted to create content. I wanted to show myself to the world. I wanted to engage with the world and with people. And I love being in front of camera. I love being on this podcast. Otherwise, I wouldn't be here with you right now. So this is simply something where I express myself and I'm happy wherever it's going to go. And I can only encourage people that you don't need to be 100% deliberate about it. Because again, I don't want to achieve a certain outcome and suffer through the process. I want to enjoy the process and I'm doing it thoroughly. I want to move on to coaching now because you mm -hmm. mentioned earlier you don't know the key to a happy life. So yeah. why are you offering a coaching program? What do you think you can bring to them that can help them? I think the question is interestingly phrased. What do I think... I can bring to them. And I can tell you that from my perspective, this is the wrong question. Because the way that I approach coaching and the way that coaches that inspired me to start this journey do it is, it is never about what your coach thinks. So in my coaching, it is very clearly about two things then. And the one part is I do clarity coaching. And the other part is I do action coaching. And what do I mean by that? Like the programs that I design, for example, for clarity, they focus on really understanding what it is that you want to do next. It really focuses on the one thing that matters most to you. And the value that I provide, you can view it from three perspectives. If we are really looking at it, many people don't necessarily have anyone whom they can talk to openly about those burning questions. And I have gone through this myself. I was approaching people back when I was 22, 23, because I really wanted to have some deep conversations and people didn't want to have those conversations. Or they the didn't know how to do it. Yeah, yeah. Or they didn't know how to do it. And the second perspective is that maybe you have people because there are people 
in my life for sure also who are amazing who have all the depth and all the clarity but I don't always know if they are the first people I want to approach about something. And if people in the entrepreneurial context where I work in a lot, it might be that you are thinking of leaving the startup that you are in. Maybe your co-founder is your trusted person, but do you really want to talk to your co-founder first or maybe even to your partner or to a close friend about you making that big life decision? Because there might be many biases of those people to try to convince you of something else. So it might be that you have people that you trust and that you love, but you cannot trust them with this specific decision before you approach them. And the third thing that I can add here is my coaching in the clarity area is specifically meant in a way that we don't put a time label on it. I don't believe in buying one hour and we talk for an hour and then you have clarity. I think those conversations take as long as they need to take. And dude, it is hard to find people who are willing to listen to somebody for more <laughs> than an hour. I mean, it's yeah, amazing that you're doing this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> so it is, it is amazing that you're doing this podcast, that you're giving people a platform. But usually people neither have the time for that nor have the skill. And I personally only develop the skill that I can listen to people on end. Like, of course, like after some six, eight hours, I'm also completely done <laughs> and I need to rest. But I developed it through, through meditating for a year. We can go into that at a different point. But so this is what I do in the clarity area. And I simply help people and offer a platform where they can talk and sort their thoughts by themselves and it accelerates and it's way easier when you do it with somebody who is there for you and the action coaching it's going to be a little bit quicker in the explanation what i do there is i meet with people for five minutes a day for four weeks and they tell me what they did yesterday what their hurdles are right now and what they're going to do next because there's so many amazing people and i'm sure that on this podcast you met so many amazing people that do amazing things but for every person that finds that courage, there's also at least one, if not many more, who do not because they do not have an accountability partner. They do not have a sparing partner, somebody who helps them to actually see the value within themselves, overcome imposter syndrome, overcome procrastination, whatever it is. So this is a coaching program that is 100% designed for people who say like, yeah, I'm ready to actually do it. And I want to make sure that I'm going to do this. And why do I do it? Well, because I love doing it. I don't want to be an entrepreneur of a unicorn company. I don't want to be a management consultant. I don't want to be an actor. What I love is having those conversations with people. And what's in it for me is that I enjoy the process that I'm engaged in. You mentioned earlier that you want to try and help people get to a place where they can make their own decisions. So you've mentioned the programs, but just tell me in practice how you do that. Because as we both know, a lot of people in modern society, in my words, don't own their shit. So how do you make people or how do you encourage them, should I say, to take responsibility for their life and their decisions? Taking responsibility is a topic that is so hard to sell. I see it so many times that people simply don't want to take responsibility. But I rarely ever work with such people on a one-on-one -on -one basis because I believe that you need to meet people where they are. And especially when I say that I want to encourage people to take their own decisions, I am in no place to force somebody to take responsibility if they don't want to take responsibility. It goes even to the point that I don't know yet fully to what degree I should work with the word responsibility because it does scare away a huge amount of people because there is something about that word that people simply don't like. But how do I help people actively? Like, what do I do? Well, you need to distinguish first then 
in those two types of people, I mean, you can distinguish people in many different ways, but just for this very specific context, there are people who in some way are ready to take responsibility and there are people who are not ready. And usually it is also tied to a very specific field. And when there are people who are not ready, what I do is my content. And I love creating it. I, to some degree, can only hope that it will reach some people. But what I learned in my own life as well is that people usually only learn from their own experience. Mm. Like, sure, they can pick up a book, they can go to class, but where the real learning usually happens is that somebody tells you something, it somehow resonates, it somehow makes sense, but then some time goes by, you find yourself in a situation, and all of a sudden, like, oh, yeah, this is what this person meant. Yeah, I totally get it now. And this is where the real learning happens, because you connect it, a certain theoretical a piece of advice, something from class, to reality. And this is what I'm doing with my content, creating an awareness that people might pick something up and at a later point in time, they are in a certain situation. They think like, oh, there was somebody was saying something. Maybe they don't even remember me, which is totally fine for me in that sense. But this is what I do for the people who are not willing to take responsibility and make their own decisions. With the people who approach me, there it is simply that you need to develop certain tools to allow yourself to make decisions. The number one thing that I see is that people don't take responsibility because they don't trust that they have the capacity, the experience, the skills, whatever it is. It's oftentimes tied to imposter syndrome. I don't think we need to go into that in too very much depth because there's so many articles about it. I'm sure that you talk with people about it in this podcast. So Everybody listening in here, just go through all the other episodes. I'm sure it's going to come up many, many times. But what people need to do and what I specifically do with people is I help them to design specific tasks that they really do where they prove to themselves that they are actually capable of doing things. Like you need to see it for yourself. You need to learn from that own experience as well again that you are capable. And you do this as I said before with a quote, the journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step. You'll learn this step by step. If you want more on this, I can only encourage the people here to go over to my podcast because I recorded many, many episodes already that are coming out throughout December on decision-making and how you do that, how you can apply tools and how you actually find the courage to take leadership and responsibility for yourself and the things that matter to you. But to go into them to depth here, I think it would take up way too much time of the people that are listening in right now. Let's reflect on this journey now before we move on, mate. So first mm -hmm. of all, what has been your proudest achievement? Um, I have a twofold answer to this. And I really love this question because it feels so simple. And my answer is also so simple, although it took, I think, those 10 years that we we're talking about in the beginning. The first part to it is that my proudest achievement is that I wake up on almost any day of the week and I'm excited to do what I'm doing. And this has not been the case for a very long time. And the second thing is that actually the question doesn't matter that much to me anymore. Because again, for me, it is not about a certain achievement, a certain outcome, a certain objective that I reach. But for me, it is way more about enjoying the process that I'm engaged in. So yeah, these are the two things that I am most proud of. And as a final question, what has this professional journey from acting to science to business policy and now content creation taught you about yourself? 
Yeah. Also a very interesting question. I think I here want to speak to some of the listeners that constantly feel like they can't do the work because I know the feeling that you are engaged in an employment context, that you are in some project, that you are in university and you continuously try to get something done and everybody around you, it feels like they are good at this thing, but you are not. And you feel that something must be wrong with you. Everybody is telling you you need to do the work, but somehow you can't get yourself to actually get it done. Because what I understood starting many things and then again dropping many things is that it is not that I am not willing to do the work. It is not that I am naturally inclined to procrastinate or anything. I am willing to do the work, but I need to find out what the specific work is that ultimately inspires me. And ever since I found that, which is mostly my content creation, also my coaching, but really mostly this content creation, it is just amazing. I want to do the work. So I learned about myself that when I really allow myself to focus on the things that matter to me, I am so excited to do the work. And I can almost say that I overcame procrastination to a very high degree and also the imposter syndrome that I suffered from. We've talked all about Teddy, the content creator. Now I want to mm -hmm. go deeper and talk about your own mental health journey, mate. So I ask all my special guests this question on this topic first. Tell me back to early life in Germany, teenage years, and looking back, were there any early mental health experiences you can pinpoint? Who's the Teddy we meet here? Who's the Teddy we meet here and any early stage mental health experiences? I think what really shaped me and I wasn't aware of it for a very long time is for sure that I have grown up with a single mom, that my father has died when I was very young, that I also didn't have any other male figures in my life. For example, my grandfather also died when I was very young. For the very first years of my life, I grew up mostly with my mother and my grandmother, and there were no real male figures in my life. Did it shape me in certain ways? For sure. And I'm super happy to go more deeply into this. Would I call this something like a trauma or would I say that I had big traumas in my life? I don't think so. It was harder for me to really find role models and really figure out who I am. But I don't think that I had any traumas in my life. That's quite an interesting thing to say considering you lost your dad quite young and your parents separated quite young. This is really about thinking, mate, right now. It's really reflecting... So one thing that I see is that there is a narrative right now that is very much focused on people sharing their traumas. And I encourage that. I think it's good when people reflect on those things, when mm -hmm. they find the courage. And I think it's deeply empowering also to many people, because if you live through something that is deeply shaping and changing you, maybe even shaking you up, I encourage people to share that trauma. But I also believe that people who have not had those traumas, we have equally valid opinions. We have equally valid perspectives. And not everybody needs to have a trauma of course. to kind of have a place in, the, in life. And I don't know why I do not classify 
my dad dying when I was young or not having a male figure in my life, why I do not classify this as a trauma. I'm also not a psychologist or anything that I could give you and hand you a definition of this. But this leads me a little bit back to the book that I was mentioning earlier, The Courage to be Disliked, because the premise of it, and I can only encourage the listeners who resonate with this, who think about, well, do I have a trauma? Don't I have a trauma? Should I have a trauma? To read that book, because it is based on Adlerian psychology. Adler was a contemporary of Freud, and we all know Freud. And Freud telling us, oh, we need to dig back into our childhood and we'll figure out everything there is about our personality, and then your entire life will make sense. Adler was taking a different perspective that has not been as accepted, but I find extremely interesting because what Adler is saying is we take our past and we then decide what we make out of it. Of course, it is a little bit more complicated, but that is also the reason why some people who go through an immense trauma classify it as that trauma and break down completely. But some people have a very similar story, but they interpret it in a completely different way and become a fighter for nobody else suffering through this. And in this context, it's also important that you classify something as a trauma or not. And for me, sure, it has impacted me, but it is not something that I am uncomfortable with talking about. It is not something that triggers many emotions. Not having had a father and having had many people die when I was very young, because it was not only my father, it was also my grandmother. It was also close friends in our family. All of this sure has shaped me in some way, but I believe that for whatever reason, I as a kid and by now chose that it makes me stronger and that I have certain understandings of certain things. Why it was that way, I don't know. I wasn't there sitting as a three-year-old kid and say like, oh, the death of my grandfather will make me stronger now. Or, oh, that my parents separate and I don't see my father for the next five years before he dies at age eight will make me stronger. For sure, I didn't think that. I don't associate or the word trauma doesn't do anything for me. Mm. When you were in that period, you didn't have many, if any, male role models. You also didn't have any siblings to lean on. And mm -hmm. a lot of children who go through divorce or go through parental grief, the bond I find that they have with their siblings is very strong because of that. So how did you deal with the possible isolation or even loneliness that comes from being an only child at that time? I don't know how it is in the UK. I know how it is in the US and how it is in Germany. Um, I think we all heard the term helicopter parents. Mm -hmm. And we do live in times that are safer and more secure than ever before in history. Although there has been a rise of protecting your nuclear family. There has been a rise of protecting your kids, especially in the United States, that everything resolves around there is this perfect harmonic family. We do things together. And out of this results that kids in the United States are brought to school by their parents and are usually then being picked up and everything revolves around this family. It's not like that in Germany and it has not been like that when I was a child. From a very early age, I think from grade two, I was walking to school myself with my friends, like down the street for a kilometer or 0.7 miles, however much that is. But it was very natural for a kid to be independent in some way that the parents were not around all the time. So just to understand that I wasn't alone all the time. I was required to basically fill my time by myself to some capacity. And 
still, I need to add to this that not having had siblings, not having had a father, also, I mean, sure, I did have my grandma, but my grandma also died when I was young. I, in the end, it was my mother and me. And it sometimes felt the two of us together. Sometimes it felt the two of us against the world. But this is not enough for a child. Like you cannot simply focus all your attention and love on your mother. And also, when you grow up with a single mom in this situation, my mom needed to work. Like she needed to provide for me, for herself. She also needed to have her life to mm. some degree. And I think that I am very guilty of having taken away a lot of her time. But well, she made the choice as well there. But I think what happened for me is that my understanding of family is very different than the one that people or most people would usually jump to. I never had that nuclear family. I never had that father. I had my mom who I dearly love. And I needed more people. So I naturally made friends. I naturally spent a lot of time. I remember like there were so many sleepovers at friends or friends coming to me and spending sleepovers at, at our place. And it was mostly that I was looking for people whom I could be close with. And this went on until today. In a relationship context, like romantic relationship, there were many hurdles around that. But in a friendship context, I think that was deeply empowering to see that family doesn't need to be defined by bloodline. I mean, many people these days struggle with, oh, there's this one person in my family. I absolutely hate what they are doing. They are so bad for my mental health, but they're family. I need to love them. I need to actually do everything to save them. I don't want to get into your space of your decision-making, but I don't necessarily understand that because I oftentimes think, well, if that person wasn't your family, you would have long already cut all contact to them. Do you not understand it because you didn't have it? I think it might be. Like I think that the thoughts that come to my head, and those are thoughts, this is nothing that I'm advocating for. I'm really just right now reflecting here with you. The thoughts that I oftentimes have is, huh, well, why is family such an important thing? Well, when I think about, okay, I mean, it makes sense to many governments to really push the idea of family because what do families do? Families provide for each other. And it takes away from a government then needing to take on certain roles. And this helps the government because what the government does is the government serves the people, finds out what do the people need. The people need to be there for each other. Oh, family is an amazing tool for people to take care of each other that we need to do less. This is totally fine. This is not a conspiracy theory of any kind. This is just, when you take a look at it, this is how it works. But there are also other concepts. I mean, the concept of polyamory is not something that is coming up right now that has never been around before. If you look at many tribes somewhere in some rainforest or something, oftentimes the concept of family is, like the entire tribe is a family. Oftentimes they don't even know who the father is, but the kids are the kids of the tribe. It's yeah, that's more like it takes a village to raise a child, literally. Exactly. So I'm just reflecting on what family means because I, for myself, never had the type of family that is advertised when you look at a TV commercial or maybe more at a TV commercial from 15 years ago where there's a family sitting together and everybody is all happy, or like there's two kids playing in the garden with their super soakers or whatever these things are called, because <laughs> I didn't That's have a throwback. that. <laughs> yeah, and I didn't have that. And 
it is okay for me, but for sure, I have a different understanding of family for that reason. Did you not feel a desire to build one for yourself despite not having it? I think for sure. I think that's the reason why I consider many close friends of mine, or many is the wrong word, like the few close friends that I consider close friends, why I consider them a family, why I would do literally anything for them as long as we keep that friendship up and as long as our values keep matching all throughout life. I, for example, a few weeks ago, I went to a friend of mine and spent an entire week with him because he went through a huge breakup with his partner, like a romantic relationship. And he's been so down. Like he didn't know what to do with himself. He has never felt like this before. He's one of the strongest people I know, but he's been completely down. And I went there and just like spent a week with him because I could do my work there as well. He was also doing his work and he just needed somebody to be there. I don't know how many people do such things. I know that many people would do such things for their family, but this is my understanding. Like I love to choose my family because if I know that there's somebody who's good for me and I can be good for them and we together can move each other forward, this is the family that I am actively building. And to answer your question, maybe more in the sense of somebody listening in and being just like, hey, what is this guy talking about? Like, I don't understand his concept of family. Yes, I also do want to have a family with children of my own. I am in a very healthy partnership. My partner and I, we do want to have kids. Like we're talking about it. It's not the right time right now. And yeah, I am thinking of her, me, two kids, three kids. Like I don't know the exact number. And I would absolutely love to have that. But maybe it's going to be a little bit different than the idea of a nuclear family. But I'm not at the stage right now that I 100% know what this is going to mean. I want to move on to something that you've faced in your childhood, in your adult years, and you're still getting a grips of, which is self-esteem and confidence. Mm -hmm. So when did those issues start? How did they manifest in your mental health? And how have you tried to get a grips of them? I would absolutely love for you to maybe jump in at some point if I get off track a little bit, because this goes (laughs) deep down into my childhood. And it's very hard when you really reflect to stay on track with these topics. I think the first thing that comes to mind is life feels tougher when you're different. And this is especially true when you're a kid. Because as a kid, you cannot make a lot of sense of all the things that are around you. And this is what you're actually trying to do. You're trying to make sense of everything that is happening. And if you're getting signals that you don't feel in, that you're different, that is tough to bear for a child. And three things that were very much shaping me as a child and that were pushing me also into the, oh, this kid is different, were one, of course, not having a father. Almost everybody else did have a dad. Maybe the parents separated, but there was a father most of the times. At least it was like that in Germany. Like I know that you mentioned that a big issue right now that is facing many boys is fatherlessness. We can yes. go into that Massively. a little bit deeper. But as a kid, you also like you don't look at statistics. It is not no, that you think not, like, no. oh, there's me, there's these other three kids. We don't have dads. Oh, and those are the kids who have dads. And oh, like, oh, actually, yeah, it's 30% or something. I don't know the number. What you see is there are other kids and they feel in the majority in your perception. And you see yourself as different. Two other things were, I was a migrant. I came from Poland to Germany when I was three years of age. And that also makes you different, especially I didn't speak a word of German before my first day in kindergarten. 
And the third thing is I was overweight as a child. This is also something that puts you into a bracket where kids can make fun of you. And Yeah, low-hanging fruit was the saying we would use in England. Exactly. And I volunteer in the local planetarium in my hometown in Bremen simply because I love it. I've done it for many years and always when I was here, I did it. And I love doing children's shows there. And I had one actually yesterday where there was a kindergarten group doing some vacation program. And there was one kid who was just a little bit hyperactive and he just like ran out of the planetarium because he needed to go to the loo. All the other kids were laughing because nobody else did that. Did this child actively choose to be the kid that was running out there to be made fun of? Like, I can't tell, but there's something within that kid that is screaming he's different and the other kids were laughing. And this is something that doesn't seem to change that much. You see it again and again. So in the context of my mental health and the context of self-confidence and self-esteem, when you are so different on so many levels, trying to find self-esteem and being confident in who you are when people are mocking you constantly, man, that is tough. Especially when you don't have the role model of a father. And I mean, I cannot tell you how it would be if I had a father, but there was not a grandpa. There was not a father. There was nobody who was helping me to understand, like, this is how you need to go through life. This is the man you need to be. This is the person you need to be. Or just giving trying... you reassurance from a male perspective as well. Because obviously your mom can do that, but she can't do it from a male perspective, regardless of how well she can be as a mom. Yeah. Exactly. And I think this is nothing that I went through with a therapist that I am 100% certain of. This is my interpretation of it right now, also reflecting with you. Constantly being confronted with not being good enough, with not fitting in, like the not good enough being my interpretation of... To them, though, not... Exactly. Yeah, to Exactly. Them. I think this is where the idea came in of, hey, I need to try to be better than people mm. think I am. And yeah, I mean, we talked about this. Yeah, I mean, you, you spoke about it not being a trauma, which I understand and completely accept, but it does still feel like a trauma response in some ways. Do you have a little bit of a definition for trauma response here for me, just maybe because I can learn something I, right now? Yeah, so... A trauma response would be a psychological, I mean, this is not an exact definition, by the way, this is just me thinking on the spot, would be a sort of psychological response or behavior trait that is mm -hmm. formed from a traumatic event. Now, you might not say it's a trauma, and I completely accept that. So maybe let's call, let's call it a psychological response. Maybe it was your psychological response to that life event. I absolutely love that you're saying this, because I think the response, and maybe I need to rethink the word trauma. Maybe maybe I think that a trauma necessarily means that there is a negative feeling and attachment to it, but mm. maybe that doesn't need to be. Maybe there was a trauma and maybe I need to learn more about it. Like I'm very inclined to, to do that. But I think that no matter if you call it a traumatic response or a psychological response, I was prone, I was like my, my response was, I was prone to doing what people were telling me, although I hated it. Mm, because you didn't have that male figure telling you, don't listen to them, maybe. Does it need to be a male figure? It would have helped, but I also... I think for boys, it, I think it, for boys it does, massively. If, if, if that's what you experience talking with so many people, doing your amazing work, and also I'm sure that you looked into the research, maybe, yeah, like for sure. I'm very sure that it would have helped me because I've seen anecdotally that friends of mine were getting that, 
you don't necessarily see the father of somebody else as your father. And usually, yeah. like, I don't know how it is these days because all of my friends are just getting fathers right now. There's nobody who's been a father for a long time. Usually, like, what am I, 29 right now? So 20, 25 years ago, fathers seemed oftentimes distant. Wherever yes, I was. Yeah. That was the model. That was the model, wasn't it? Because of that yeah. generation. I mean, especially in Germany, it would be amped up because you guys have certain behavior traits too. But I think, yeah, the boomer generation and then before them the silent generation they were called the ones who fought in world war ii the men were much more stoic and the men were perhaps more emotionally distant because there wasn't the space for them to be open about their emotions if they wanted to and also because of the way that the division of labor was done perhaps men were they felt more pressure to work because less women worked Therefore, the women were looked to more as the emotional provider, whereas the men were looked to as more of the financial provider. So there was that division of labor. So, yeah, there's many different factors, I, I would assume, that you know played into that. I would like to add one thing, because I think it might be interesting in the conversation moving forward and also knowing a few of the rapid questions you like to, to ask towards the end. I think one thing that manifested that is so opposite to many of the experiences of kids who grew up with both a father and a mother. From the first day of kindergarten, when I was three years of age, until the end of kindergarten, where I was six years old, almost even until the end of elementary school, I only had female friends. Interesting. Very unlikely. Think of a three-year-old boy who is, ugh, girl, I don't know what that is. Or even like a six-year-old kid who was even more thinking that. Like they got cooties or whatever you call that. But I, from the very very first day of kindergarten, I felt very inclined to play with girls, to spend my time with them. And I had three very close friends who were all girls. There was no other guy. Of course, then the mothers were taking care of us. And my entire surroundings were almost 100% female. It only started in grade three of elementary school that I was being invited to somebody having a birthday party, like a boy, and he was inviting the entire class. So there must have been many things in the context of not having had a father and also until this day of not having had a lot of self-esteem in the role of being a man, which I am in society. And you take a look at me, sure, I do have long hair, but like many guys have these days, I am a straight white male. When you look at me, this is what many people see. And there are expectations that are held toward me. And not having had a lot of interactions with, oh, how do those people behave? Guidance, yeah. yeah. Figure out yourself, yeah. And this is, again, trying to figure out so many things as a kid, it's tough to figure that out and... uh, easy response is that you get low self-esteem because you don't know how to do it. You just figure it out by yourself. Are you going to do it right, wrong? Ah, shoot. Best thing is not to do it anything at all. I want to talk about something which you said was your core framework in life, which is principles are unquestioned values. Mm -hmm. So that feels like quite a strong belief system, very German, stereotypically. (laughs) Why has that not translated into your personal confidence? Okay. Very good question. I believe that actually having the understanding that principles are unquestioned values was a key driver for me to build confidence. Ah, so it was the foundation. Okay. Exactly. So Mm -hmm. 
it is not something like you don't go around being 18 years old, 20 years old, like maybe if you are Greta Thunberg and you're trying to resolve <laughs> the entire issues of the world, we'll applaud you for doing that, but you're not going around as a regular 18 or 20 year old having that understanding. And I can also only encourage anybody listening in, especially being maybe 18 or 20 years old, I know that it sounds annoying, but understanding certain things takes time. Like that's how it is. You see over and over again that some people come to certain realizations at similar ages. And this was a realization that I did not have before I think I was 26-ish or so. But what do I mean with principles or unquestioned values? Principles are usually defined as certain norms or standards that people in society adhere to. And what you hear people say oftentimes in the context of principles, which really bugs me is, I do this out of principle. Or it has always been this way. So it's fixed. You don't like the fixed part. I don't like the fixed part. And this is why I say principles are unquestioned values. You could also say unreflected values. I'm not going to mm -hmm. go into the definition of values here because usually when you go into the definition of values, you go into ethics and integrity, which are crucial parts of values. Yeah, that's a whole the rabbit same. hole. <laughs> that's a whole rabbit hole. Mm. But what I mean is that it matters a lot to me to not simply do things in a fixed mindset, but whenever I do something that is of importance, of course, like when I do a grocery list, I don't care that I have principles how I do my grocery list. But when there is something important, working with a client, creating my content, I want to continuously keep reflecting if what I'm doing or what I'm saying also in this context, because oftentimes things that are labeled as double standards are not necessarily double standards, but you apply a different framework for a different context, that I keep reflecting if the foundation, the guiding forces of what I do, if I can stand behind them, if I can reason for them. And an exercise that I started doing, and I do it usually every three to six months, is I sit down, it usually takes me an hour, and I write down decisions that I made throughout the past three to six months that kind of stuck with me in my head. And for that reason, it's usually bigger decisions. And I write down what the guiding forces behind those decisions were. And then I have two columns next to it, one column being value, one column being principle. And I label them. I label them as a value if I can reasonably stand behind this. If there is a reasonable, logical path that I can be like, oh, this is why I decided this way. And I label them principle if I see like, oh, I cannot come to that clear conclusion. And then it's important to me with the principles to really see, are they harmful? And if they are harmful, I need to then make the next, like if they're not harmful, I can simply keep them. But if they are harmful, I need to either keep working to understand why I'm doing it this way. I need to replace them or I need to drop them. And this is what I mean with principles, unquestioned values. And this was a very strong key driver to me actually gaining personal confidence. Because if you're not clear on why you do certain things, if you're not clear what you stand for, if you're not clear what person you are, and if you do not reflect on your values, whatever the definition is for you, like for you in the sense of a general you, well, then it is very hard to build personal confidence. And when you are in that process, you are so prone to people trying to alter those values, either maliciously but oftentimes also, whatever the action intention or the biases that people have, whenever you are in conversation with somebody, they always put in 
their own values into the conversation. I'm sharing mine right now. You are sharing yours. You're also attracting certain people to your podcast. So it is very natural. I mean, I hope so. (laughs) (laughs) Any people at all, really. (laughs) Exactly. But so this is, this is the context that I needed to understand that before I could actually, actually develop confidence. I want to move on to Harvard University, mate, which is a very prestigious and famous Mm -hmm. American university that you studied at. I'm sure you had loads of positives from it, the clout, shall we say, and the experience, but you did find some parts of it quite challenging at times. Just tell me and the listeners why you found it so. So I've been privileged and I've been thankful for that experience. Like you are saying it correctly. Overall, it's been an amazing time. I met amazing people because the thing that those universities do, when I say those universities, I mean places that attract people who want to impact the world. Like you're naturally surrounded by people who have strong visions and they absolutely, most of the times, encourage you to believe in your own vision. So oftentimes when I went to university in Germany, when I was uh, doing my undergrad, when I had a big idea, people were like, why? Like, why do you want to start a company? Like, do it, get a job. (laughs) Yeah, but the thing that happened in the United States was, I gained a lot of confidence because when I said that I had a certain idea, people automatically assumed that I'm going to do it and they tried to help me achieve that. So this is the overall beauty of those places that I experienced. But those places naturally attract leaders, leaders with a proven track record, leaders who care for something very deeply and have done something towards that. And similarly as with me, similarly as with you, similarly as everybody who takes leadership for something, you have opinions. And some opinions are stronger, some opinions are more subtle. And for that reason, the challenging part regarding my mental health that I'm in retrospect also thankful for is that when you are in a place where people have very strong opinions, it is very easy to get into conflict. And what I was assuming before I went was, wow, I'm going to be learning from people with different perspectives. But some people don't come to class to learn. Some people come to class to teach at no matter what cost. And I'm when always you say wondering... teach there, I think you mean more like impose. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah. Thank you for saying it more clearly. And I was always wondering, like, why are you spending this amount of money to force your opinion on other people instead of learning and instead of trying to come together? I'm very happy to go more deeply into it. I'm very curious what other questions you have here. But to summarize my core issue, my core issue was that the people that I met were not only challenging me, but at times, because I was sharing my opinions, I was developing my personal confidence because I was saying the things that mattered to me were trying to shut me down. And this was something, if you are in the context of developing your personal confidence, which is very tough to deal with. And we're not talking here about like three days of that happening. We're talking here about the majority of my experience of my master's, which was two and a half years. It very much sounds like to me that you A, didn't like identity politics and you B, didn't like the strain of illiberalism. I'm not going to call it woke because it's just a catch-all term now that people on both sides use to mean nothing. So it sounds like you mean this a liberal move to curtail freedom of speech or freedom of discussion and imposing a narrative from their side 
that they mm-hmm. believed was completely right and infallible. Exactly. This is exactly right. And the thing that I believe in at my core is true, true equality. Can we ever have true equality? Dude. We can have general equality. I don't think we could ever have true equality because that means equity. That means equality of outcome. Thank you for saying that. Especially like I try not to use the word true that much anymore because like there's no truth. <laughs> there are truths. Even yourself have multiple yes. of them. That's why I never use my truth. I say my story or my journey. I never say my truth because someone can easily go, well, that just assumes that you, what you say is true. 100%. Rubbish. Again, learn something. Thank you. And I, um, <laughs> I honestly, just because it makes sense to mention that right now, I'm so thankful for your questions because like we talked beforehand, you also gave me the chance to have a peek into the conversations that we're going to have. Dude, I spend a lot of time thinking about these things and this <laughs> helped me in my own journey. So this entire conversation and also everything that went into it, like you are helping people who are on this podcast to get oh, more clear you, if they take this seriously. So thanks a lot. Let me maybe go a little bit more into what really happened and mm-hmm. make it a little bit more, yeah, get some plasticity Visceral. to it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Give the listeners some context. So when you have people who, oh, no, let's, let's take one step back. Harvard University is in the United States. So this is something that people first and foremost need to understand. Sure, it prides itself with having many international students mm-hmm. and I think 50% of our class was from all over the world, 80 countries, but still 50% was from the United States. And it is located in the United States. I did a degree in public policy, which is even more prone to focus on what is happening within society. Yeah, for the listeners who don't know, Harvard slash Yale is the equivalent of like Oxford slash Cambridge in the UK. Thank you for saying that. I don't really know what, I don't really know if Harvard is the Oxford or Yale is the Cambridge or the other way around, but that's, that's how I would compare them. I would leave this up to the listeners doing the research. <laughs> I don't want to make any statements of this. I know that, no, never mind. I'm not going to go into, into the beef that there is. But the thing that I actually do want to go into is, yeah. So you need to understand that this was set then in the United States with a strong United States focus. And the United States have their issues. Like this is a country that... This is my personal opinion right now. This is how I view it. The next thing, very important, I did not do a policy analysis, but this is how it, I experienced it. Mm-hmm. And this is what I heard from many people studying with me that they agreed on. When you look at the political landscape on the national level, it is usually that you have two parties only that are very opposed. You cannot really vote for anyone else. Yes, you can, but they're not going to get in. It never happened in the recent history. Like you have the Republicans and you have the Democrats. I fall on neither side. I am truly just none of my business. But what usually happens is one term, a president gets in, they enact all their policies and they're being reelected. They keep doing and people get upset that something is being done that they don't like. And all of a sudden, all the people who did not vote, who didn't like something, start voting for the other party. And after eight years, a new president comes in from the new party. The thing they do in the first term is they try to get rid of everything the person before them did then they're being reelected, and then they implement their policies. People again get upset, and it is a circle. So it is a pendulum that swings slowly but heavily. And this is, of course, reflected in the everyday conversations. And if we go back to, to having strong leaders and 
maybe that is the wrong term, having strongly opinionated people, because if they're really <laughs> leading... Yeah, let's do that. <laughs> that's, that's, a, that's a different question. And if somebody of you is listening to this that I had my issues with, I'm super happy. Come on my podcast and let's have those conversations because everything I'm sharing is, again, my personal opinion. But to, again, add a little bit more plasticity. I, for example, I believe in positive change. I do not believe in negative change. I for scientific reasons, for experiential reasons, for psychological reasons, it is very hard to be against something and create something of value out of this. If you are 100% against polluting the environment, you get your identity out of being against this. So at some point, if you go long enough with this, if you really eradicate what you want to eradicate, you are at a place where you lose purpose. Many people have issues with that. The second thing is that when you are coming from that place of wanting to destroy something, you come from a mindset of destruction, not constructiveness. Like you don't try to do something that builds something new, but you are coming from a place of negativity and demolition. And this shapes the way that you are working. And also... Many of the movements that are going on in the United States, I don't want to name any specific movements because I'm not an expert on any of them, but just open up, fire up Google, just look at like the news on politics in the United States and you will find many of them. Many of those movements try to overthrow current systems and blame certain parties that are in power. And I'm not saying that they are not in power. And their approach is to try to overthrow them, to blame them, oftentimes aggressively, like look at all the riots that were going on in the United States, but the people who are in power, the people you hate so, so much, they are in power and they are in power for a reason. And it is very hard to get somebody out of a place of true power because usually they worked for it. They set up certain things that will keep them in power because most people who are in true power the one thing they ensure is that they stay in that power so trying if you don't have power whatsoever trying to overthrow them like you're not doing yourself a service most movements if you look at history that really did change or that really did help change a society came from a place of peace and a place of collaboration they oftentimes went over generations and if you really want to make a change collaborate with the people who are in power and understand that it will take time. And I know that personally know the feeling that you want to do things more quickly, that there are so many important things and it needs to change right now because you are suffering from it. Other people are suffering from it, but it is not necessarily that this approach will help you. In my opinion, and what I've seen many times is you're even wasting your time. And I'm kind of wondering if you want to ask a follow-up question or if I should just go on here because I can go into a very, very specific example of what happened to me. Uh, let's do the example and then we'll move on. So a very specific example that happened to me. I was in the United States during Trump's term. Like I was in the United States during the time that Joe Biden was running against Trump. And Boston, where Harvard University is located, or more Cambridge, this is the town, but like it is around Boston. It's a very liberal bubble. Like you have many people who very much fall onto the democratic side of things. And I was wondering why being at this prestigious university that is really 
a gateway to the world where you can have conversations, reflection, where there's so much amazing research coming from that shapes how society thinks about certain things. One thing was kind of odd to me. We're talking about the election, but the only side that I'm hearing from is the pro-Joe Biden side, the side that is pro-democratic, but I never even once for a very long time heard in the context of classes and the context of things that were going down in the hallways, I never heard anything about like what pro-Trump people were thinking. And it was not that I didn't see how he's shaken, um, how he's shaken the country, but I still believe that you need to include both sides. And I think it is a natural question to ask, and I went public with it within the context of classrooms, within the context of like the hallways where there were conversations, that I would like to add the perspective of the people who would vote for Trump and why they would vote for Trump. On the one hand, because you can then understand it better, and even if you're against that path, well, you can gain a lot of knowledge from that. But on the other hand, this is how, in my perspective, you include people. The response that I received was that I'm Republican, that I am a white supremacist, that I am racist, and that my opinion is wrong. I was like, how can my opinion be wrong? Like, this is my opinion. And how can it be wrong to ask for a little bit more clarity? And this is the things that were going down. And to close this up, this was deeply troubling me because we're talking about it that I was developing my own self-confidence during that time. And this was going on for the entirety of the time, for around two years. And at some point, when you consistently get that feedback simply for asking questions, and I know that those questions were provocative in a way, I'm not saying that they were not, but when this is the environment you're in and you are a reflective person, you start reflecting, am I the bad guy? Am I doing something wrong here? Like, am I viewing it wrong? Am I really the villain? And I'm deeply thankful to a friend that I met at Harvard, that I studied with. And this is also like, when I talk about him, most people at Harvard are that way. It is just few people who really strongly walk around, try to sabotage. This is not the entire university. It's very few people, but also oftentimes very loud. But this friend that I talked to, he asked an important question that has guided my thinking and helped me develop my self-confidence. He said, well, Teddy, you keep reflecting over this and you kind of keep in a loop that you are, on the one hand, wondering if you're a bad person, but on the other hand, whoever you talk to and really reflect the research you do, you come to the conclusion that you're not doing anything wrong. Do the people that you have this issue with, do they do you the same service? Do they do the reflection. And I cannot say if they do or they don't. I can I mean, say the, that they... The answer is no, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, but, but the thing is, I did not establish conversation with them. I was not successful at doing that, so I cannot tell you what was going on in their heads. I can only see that there were rumors being spread around me. I can only say that there were people retrying to sabotage me in some way and shut me down. But this piece of wisdom was invaluable because by now I know I can only encourage anyone who's listening in right now, if there's something that you strongly believe in and you've reflected upon it and you, again, with the best integrity and values and ethics and clarity, come to the same conclusion, but there's people who tell you that you're wrong, well, if you've done that reflection, keep going your path 
And don't think because people are opposing you, especially when they do not do the same reflection that you are doing, well, everything is right with you. Mm. Keep going your path. Before we reflect, I want to briefly go back to the story you told about you going traveling around Europe and Asia in 2022, because before this, you were in relationships which you invested a lot of yourself and your identity into. You said you were very attached to them. Would you say you had an anxious attachment style back then? And how did you, if so, reach a secure attachment style after you came back? I can answer this with 100% yes. I did have an extremely insecure attachment style. If we think a little bit back about it, like I grew up mostly with a single mom. And I did a lot of reflection also during those travels that my mom, as much as I love her, will be gone one day. And the first thing that comes to your mind if you are an attached person is like, shoot, I'm going to be all on my own. There's not going to be anybody else. And I made a very deliberate decision that I didn't want to be in relationships for a certain amount of time. It was like around three years because I was very attached to my ex-girlfriends. I was kind of maybe seeking a similar relationship that I had to my mom in the sense that there's somebody else that I can be very close with. That but if not my too mom close is, with, yeah. 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 That if my mom is gone, that I'm not going to be all by myself. Like there was a lot of anxiety driving my attachment and it manifested in such unhealthy ways and manifested in me believing that whenever somebody broke up with me that they were not seeing the good person that i was they were not appreciating all the love and sacrifice i was giving towards them and what kind of effed up mindset is that like in a relationship by now i understand that both people need to come from a place where they are in a very good relationship with themselves and then they support each other, then they are there for each other, but they also live their own lives. But I had a focus on absolutely sacrificing myself and 100% having somebody to not be alone. And this is not the right motivation for any type of healthy relationship. A big moment as well during your traveling experience seems to be around a visit to a Buddhist monastery. So why was that moment so important? It's only been a week that I went to this Buddhist monastery. I overall spent around a month in Nepal and was hiking also the Everest Base Camp Trail, which was also deeply transformative. But the entire time in Nepal, especially and especially this monastery, they were amazing. And the number one reason will sound like something that many people have heard, but not many people do, and I encourage you to do it. It was a week where I was completely disconnected from the outside world. My phone was gone. My computer was gone. There was only three things that I was actually doing. I was learning about Buddhism. I was taking care of my substantial human needs, like sleeping, eating. And the third thing was, there were so many moments where I was just sitting with myself. And these days... I can speak from my experience, but I believe it to be universal for many people. We constantly seek distraction and it's so easy to get entertained. Like after a hard day of doing work that you might not even care about that much, you get home and you distract yourself with watching a Netflix show or whatever streaming provider you're using. And 
we constantly distract ourselves from having the important conversations with ourselves. And the monastery was the place that taught me to sit with my thoughts, that taught me what happens if I do not necessarily have the distraction to be like, oh, I don't want to go deeper into that rabbit hole, but to really see what happens when I think things through. And sure, meditation, learning how to properly meditate also helped me. But I think overall what it did to me is it allowed me to be at peace with me sitting somewhere and actually thinking. And as we reflect on your mental health journey, mate, similar question as before first, what has this mental health journey taught you about yourself? In some sense, I am very lucky to not have had a role model in the male context early on, but also in a wider context. Because I am very happy that I did not take on certain traits, that I did not form certain values simply because they were lived for me, that I saw somebody else living. But as tough as it was and as harsh as it was, I had the great opportunity to develop my own guiding compass. And I am extremely grateful that I went through all of this, that I reflected many of these things, and that I know that I am the guiding compass and I can decide what I want to focus my life on. And as a final question, if yeah. you could go back and talk to the Teddy who had lost his father and was on his own with his mum, the Teddy who was tired of identity politics at Harvard, or the Teddy who was about to start this content creation platform, but questioning whether it was the right path, in air quotes, what would you say to him knowing what you do now? I think at any point of this journey, no matter where I would jump in, I think the thing that I would tell myself is, you're on the right path, buddy. Because many times it is that way, and we talked a little bit about it before, that you need to make your own experiences. And also, I was in no place at any of those points in time to necessarily understand any of the wisdom that I gained by now. So I wouldn't want anything to change, not in the sense of Amor Fati and being stoic or anything, but like, no, this path takes time. And if I had talked with myself, I would have told myself, you're on the right path, buddy. And I can just wish that it would have made me a little bit calmer and less anxious about the entire journey. We've come to our final topic of conversation, Teddy, and it's one I try and have with all of my special guests if we have time. It is a general natter and quickfire chat about our mental health. So firstly, how is your mental health, mate? It's never been better. Excellent. What well, I love to hear, mate. And what age were you when you became self-aware of your mental health for the first time and you realized that the feelings you were having weren't physical and they were actually in your mind? I think around 25. It was at the time when I started my master's degree and was living in the United States. And was it a eureka moment or was it a gradual process? 100% gradual process. Okay. And can you also remember the first conversation you ever had with someone about your mental health? So who was it with? What did you say? And what impact did it have? Did it feel like on the one hand, this big moment or a big weight had been lifted or on the other, something quite easy and normal to do? The honest answer is no, I can't remember it. And I'm thankful for that because it seems that I live in a bubble 
where mental health is something completely normal to talk about, where getting therapy is something that people simply do. So I can't remember it. And I'm thankful that it is something normalized. Okay. Interesting answer, but I like it. What things do you find in life that trigger your mental health, if any? So it could be things people say to you. It could be a sound, a sensation, being in a particular social environment, or have you not figured all of them out yet? I'm sure that there are many, and I'm sure that I haven't figured out all of them. But one thing that consistently comes to my mind where I catch myself is I am triggered by generalizations about men. So what I mean by that is that, as I said before, I grew up with a deeply female environment. And I oftentimes hear things like, oh, men just do what they want. Men just get the money that they want. Men just don't have imposter men syndrome. Men just, yeah. 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 <laughs> and the thing is, always when I hear that, I'm just like, I don't know the stats. Maybe that's true, but that's not me. So please, if you say those things, reflect that you cannot make a generalization about 50% of the people who live on earth. And you are deeply hurting some and you are triggering some for no necessary reason mm, yeah because quite rightly if you said women just do or women yeah. just we would say that's rightly wrong to generalize yeah. <laughs> so there you go what positive tools and methods do you use in your own life to improve your mental health mate or help you feel better which ones have worked and maybe which ones that you've tried but haven't i think the honest answer to this is that you need to overcome the fear of having the tough conversations with yourself that is what helps me Whenever I block something out or whenever I have a conversation with somebody else and they're just like, oh, I just don't want to talk about this, this is the point where things need to change. Sure, don't force anything onto anybody. They're not ready. They're not. I have the same thing, but I by now developed the tool. I can say that I oftentimes already in the moment when my partner, for example, triggers something within me and I argue against it, <laughs> I know that in 10 minutes I will come back to her and I will tell her like, sorry, this was just a stupid reaction of mine. You're absolutely right. Let's talk about this. I believe that everybody needs to find their own tools for this. Something works for one person that doesn't work for the other. For me, reading helps a lot. For me, meditation helps a lot. Not in the sense that I gain clarity during meditation, but I develop the skill of staying focused. And here, if I might say that, you can also cut it out if you want to. I share many, many ways in my own podcast on how you can actually go through that, how you can make your own decisions, and how you can come to that clarity. Just join my podcast and you will Shameless learn a lot plug. about this. I love it. Shameless plug. I love it. I love it. If there was a mantra in life, mate, that summed up your mental health, what would it be and why? <laughs> love that. I think it is from one of the greatest philosophers of all time, which is Winnie the Pooh. <laughs> this is way too important to be taken seriously. Like one of my core values is joy of life. And joy of life doesn't necessarily mean that I'm as I said before, all stupid all the time, but importance or seriousness or something, this is a human mental construct. And if we constantly believe that it is all about this one thing, about this one decision, then we are losing touch with the greater scheme of things. And no matter what you're working on, it is only as important as you believe that it is and figure out if that is it. So tell yourself when you work on something, this is way too important to be taken seriously. I thought for a second you were going to go, hmm, I love honey. <laughs> I was well, thinking, I where's, where's this going? Winnie the Pooh, philosopher. <laughs> right, okay. Okay. I've got two questions left, mate. The first one yeah. is, what do you love about yourself? There's two things. The one is that I, by now, grew into a role model for myself. 
This doesn't mean that I think that I'm doing everything right, because again, principles are unquestioned values, but I can come to myself when I collected all the information on important decisions, and I know that I will come to the conclusions that are necessary for me and also for the people that I lead. So I am deeply thankful that I can see myself as a role model for myself. And the second thing that helps me with staying grounded, though, is that I am an empathetic person. I take notice of all the details, of all the things that people say, and I get that back all the time. So, oh, you're very attentive. So mm -hmm. I think I love that I can be true to myself, and I also love that I am very curious in finding out who the people are that I'm with. And as a final question, mate, what more do you think we have to do to ensure men from all backgrounds or walks of life feel comfortable and safe in opening up about their mental health issues or just their general mental health if, most importantly, they want to do it? I honestly think that you with this podcast are being a leader in this because just check in with each other. If you ask somebody how they are and the person says, fine, dig a little bit deeper. Of course, don't go too far if they don't want to open up about it. Well, they're not ready for it. But in this example, if you're asking somebody, how are you? And they say, fine. And you ask again, and they're not ready. Somebody else might ask it. Or you do it again a few weeks from then. And show people that it is totally normal to check in with each other and to have the important conversations and to be down at some point. Just, yeah, be honest with each other, care for each other, check in with each other. And not just in a podcast, but in your everyday context. And on that note, Teddy Lang, thank you so much for coming on the Just Checking In podcast and talking to me, mate. Amazing. Thank you. Well, that's all we've got time for on this episode of the Just Checking In pod. I want to say a big thank you for Teddy for being my special guest and for letting me check in with him. And of course, I'll put a link to Teddy's website and his social media channels in the show notes if you want to find out more about all the work that he does. I'll sign us off by saying thank you to all the venters who tuned into this episode. Remember, if you've liked what you've heard, please give it a share on social media. Tell your friends or work colleagues about it. If you're feeling generous, please write us a review and give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. I had a very nice review on the podcast about three weeks ago now, which was very nice. That was the first one about a year. So please do give another review if you can. If you like what we're doing and want to support us further, please do consider supporting us by going to patreon.com slash ventshelpuk or you can make a one-off donation to our GoFundMe or buy a Vent t-shirt. All of those links are on our link tree. That's linktr.ee slash ventshelpuk. We hope to check in with you again very soon. And remember guys, it is always okay to vent. <laughs>